Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Here from the What the Heck is the Cloud Anyway department of .NET Rocks, officially. <laughs> that joke will make sense in just a minute. Other people's computers. <laughs> <laughs> it's the term that's been bandied about so badly. I just can't stand Other it. Other people's computers. Yeah. So why don't we roll the music and get everybody else in on the joke? Okay. All right, dude, what do you got? All right. So this is touted as the most innovative thing, like EE Times, Open Systems Media, Tech Crunch, Home Toys, Startup. Ma magazine or whatever i don't know what it is but the, they're all going crazy about this thing it's ansel a-n-t-s-l-e and if you go to 1495.pwop.me you'll see this meet ansel the on-premises alternative for public cloud solutions like aws in other words it's a server <laughs> 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 instead of other people's computers it's your computer it's your computer stop renting this is what it says okay easily host from your home or office the perfect interplay of hardware and software ready out of the box own it set it deploy it take back control no more hosting fees keep your data local so you know okay so it's an on-premise server this is what it says freedom with Ansel, you physically own your data and keep it local. Outsmart the giants. Enjoy unlimited room to experiment. Save money. It's more than just saving on monthly hosting fees. It's the peace of mind to create virtual servers at will anytime you want. Full control. We provide the tools. You decide what to do with it. Configure Ansel any way you want. You are in control, not Google or Amazon. So there you go. Now, this thing starts at, you know, like less than $1,000 with nothing right. on it and uh, goes, you could spend 13 grand on this thing. I'm going to presume there's a certain amount of software that provides as much, you know, cloud as architecture as opposed to cloud as hardware. Exactly. And, you know, that's what, that's what they're going for. They have the software that lets you run every kind of server and do any kind of. But it's still funny. But it's still kind of <laughs> a little bit it's funny. It's a little funny. <laughs> I mean, wasn't that the whole idea that, you know, oh, except when it breaks, then what happens, Ansel? Should I buy two of them? Well, at least two, probably four. How would I sync them? Is there anything there? Don't know. How do you scale them? Buy more. Buy more. There you go. That's funny, dude. I love it. It's a little bit funny. Yeah. It's very interesting. Well, and it is interesting. And I, I can't, I, you know, I'm not going to totally no. make fun of them. I mean, there are some situations in which you would want an Ansel or a server with software mm -hmm. on it. But, uh, you know, there it is. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1400. So roughly 100 shows ago with one Phil Hack when we were talking about rewriting critical code. All right. Uh, with great conversation. And this comment comes from Gareth Ashton. He said, a good discussion as always. I would like to add to the discussion around determining when to rewrite. Because that was the big question. If you're, you're right. taking code that works and risking it essentially by rewriting it, does it make a lot of sense? Yeah. The initial factor is usually it's the, it's costing more time to maintain than to build a new one, which most people won't argue with. The other points that guys bring up is about aging hardware, security risks, and all those things to factor in as well. However, even with all those factors considered, it seems logical to rewrite the system. The number one reason I see over and over again to not do it is opportunity cost. In other words, if you're going to rewrite, you need to focus your resources on rebuilding something that you essentially already have in order to get to the point where you can add something new that translates to zero new features for at least a few months, perhaps even years, hmm. while the new system is being built, which in today's climates, most companies can't sustain. The way forward I've found is parallel development. You keep your current system and you keep releasing new features for your current system, but you maintain a separate but integrated dev path rewriting in the new chosen technology. Yes, there is more cost, but if that cost is factored into the initial cost, then you have a formula to determine the correct course of action. Yeah, there's a certain amount of side-by-side -side that has to happen here. You, you can't stop development on the current app, especially when you talk about stuff like security vulnerabilities and the like. Right. And parallel development gets very challenging. It's more people, it's more time, and it's frustrating to see the old app getting further away at times 
when the new app is still trying to catch up with that core feature set that you keep adding to. But uh, it's subtle to figure out the right ways to do those things. And often it's we go through several generations behind so that the new tools and the new techniques allow us to build that application that much quicker and we can actually overtake it. Yeah. So, Gareth, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We store them on our Ansel. <laughs> then we scale them up. There's tweets everywhere. <laughs> I'm drowning in tweets over here. <laughs> All right, let's bring out Phil Hack. Phil works at GitHub as director of client apps, a group that consists of the desktop, Atom, Electron, and editor tools teams. Prior to that, he was a senior program manager at Microsoft, responsible for shipping ASP.NET MVC and NuGet. These projects were released under open source licenses and helped served as examples to other teams for how to ship open source software. He regularly writes for his blog at hacked.com, H-A-A-C-K-E-D, and tweets random observations on Twitter as at hacked. He also speaks at conferences here and there and has quit writing technical books forever several times now. Welcome back, Phil. Great to be here, gentlemen. <laughs> yes. We had to get our fill of Phil and then we got hacked. Uh, this is where we're going to go, huh? <laughs> no, no, no. This is recording on a Friday afternoon right here. There's always new stuff going on at GitHub and I feel like we have to reach out to you every once in a while just to find out what's new. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's great to talk about GitHub. <laughs> Yeah, I imagine you know you don't get tired of talking about GitHub, do you? Not at all, not at all. You know, I was thinking in uh, regards to that comment about parallel development, um, that's effectively what we did when we rewrote our desktop applications. There's the double opportunity cost of, you know, any amount of time you spend on the old one, you're not spending right. on the new one. So we ended up just doing security fixes and, and critical fixes. A few little features here and there, but for the most part, you know, kind of over time transition all the future development to the, the new clients. And we just recently shipped what we're calling our 1.0 for the, the electron-based desktop application. Yeah. So we're finally deprecating the old clients. We're, we're going to keep supporting them for a little while, but our hope is eventually we, we get everyone to the new client. But if you go to desktop.github.com, that app is an electron app. Correct. Yeah. So, we're, you know, like we, we did the rewrite and so far, you know, it seems to have been successful in terms of like the overall goal and mission of why we did it and doing it for the right reasons and all that. But yeah, it's definitely not something that's just, you know, like it's not something that you just go into uh, willy nilly. What was the original uh, desktop app written in, especially for Windows? The Windows one was WPF and C Sharp, and the Mac one was Objective-C and Cocoa. And now everything is JavaScript, HTML, CSS. Hmm. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> well, on the desktop. <laughs> yeah, for written in for Electron, right? That's the coding environment for Electron is, is JavaScript, deliberately. Yes. You know, I don't, I don't know as if we've really talked about Electron all that much on the show. It's a GitHub technology, right? It was Atom Shell? Yes, it was formerly called Atom Shell, and we realized that caused confusion because, you know, it was basically... The Atom shell could be used to build any kind of application, not just Atom. Mm. That's how it started. You know, it's basically extracted from Atom. And we're like, hey, this might be useful to other people. And so now, you know, you have apps like our desktop application, in addition to Atom, built on Electron. Microsoft has several apps, obviously, VS mm -hmm. Code, Microsoft Teams. Mm -hmm. All of these are built on Electron. And what was cool is that, you know, in a little interplay with Microsoft technologies is we use TypeScript for the desktop application. And we had a really good time. I think some of my colleagues are uh, major fans of Anders Heilsberg. How can anybody not be a fan of Anders Heilsberg? Yeah, it's, really. The guy's just a giant pile of awesome. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Before we get off Electron, what are some limitations of it? I mean, the things that come to mind might be that anything that's like native I.O., but does it have access to audio system, let's say? or? Uh, yeah, so the base... Electron is node running in Chromium. Right. You have access to pretty much anything, you know, on the machine through bridges to those technologies. And if there's anything you don't have access, the Teams works on making those APIs accessible. So yeah. you can do for specific things, you might have to do conditionals. So, you know, if I'm running on an, a Mac OS, you know, access this thing that only belongs to Mac OS. Yeah. But for the most part, what we try to do is have abstractions for all the most common things, audios and stuff. 
I would say that the main limitation is if you need to use the very latest operating system technology and look and feel, right. you know, Electron tends to lag a little bit behind, but not that far. For example, you know, the recent Macs came out with the touch bar and we added touch bar support not long after that. Mm-hmm. Some of the apps tend to be, you know, I think some of the early Electron apps, people just kind of took a website and just cut and paste it in there. Sure, yeah. And I think you won't get the necessarily the best responsive environment that way. Mm-hmm. If you ever try taking a look at the desktop environment, you'll see that it's really f- snappy and responsive and it feels like a native application. You can kind of tell in some ways it's an Electron app because it has a slightly different look and feel than maybe your typical Windows app. Yeah, yeah. But in some ways, that, I think that's a, also a good thing. I think it's a really good example of an app that was designed with Electron in mind uh, yeah. from the ground up. Yeah. And uh, that, you know, combined with React, combined with uh, TypeScript, Mm. ended up being a very productive environment for the team. You probably have a lot of web developers, and you know that uh, it's really nice being able to view source, hot reload, all that stuff that you do with web development. Doing that for a desktop app ends up being really productive. I'm sorry, did you say you used React and TypeScript in Electron to build a desktop app? Yes. That's cool, huh? Because isn't there also the React native path, too? Yeah, so we didn't use React native. Uh, I don't think that would make as much sense because... Electron really is about hosting the DOM. Right. But experimenting with React Native in Electron is something that uh, you've probably had him on the show before. Paul Betts has played around with. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I haven't followed up with him to see, well, how did that go? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's always trying to push the envelope with, uh, you know, wild ideas. Well, and React Native is really focused on mobile rather than just any- everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in, in theory. Exactly. And what's nice, yeah, like if you're building a mobile app, React Native is definitely very compelling because it's the same programming paradigms, you know, programming model that you would do if you already have React experience. Right. It's just that your components aren't rendering DOM elements, they're rendering, you know, native elements instead on whatever device. So that's definitely, you know, an interesting area. So we're big fans of React. Uh, We found it to be really productive for our need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very cool stuff. And it's always interesting to hear... You know, I, I want, I'm going to hesitate to say reference app, but it's like, you guys are pretty experienced software developers and you're maintaining, you know, the desktop app for a long time for a lot of people. Your choice of tooling speaks volumes, I think. Yep. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And I, I really hope that for, for folks who are building an Electron desktop app from the ground up, I hope they take a look at the what the team's done with the desktop app and use that as at least one reference point for the type of thing you do. Because Adam, I think, is difficult to serve as a reference point because not everyone's writing a text editor. And, you know, Adam has very, it's very deep in terms of what it has to do. Right. Desktop is more of a a standard, like, you know, I wouldn't say typical, but typical desktop application. Yeah. And the source is all in GitHub, I bet. (laughs) Yeah, it's all open source. (laughs) Yeah. You sure you're not going to put it in SourceForge? I'm just asking. (laughs) (laughs) You're so funny, Richard Campbell. I, I I think Phil left an easy one on the table there. He said, oh, no, it's in Coplex. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you go to Codeplex and says, we've moved. To GitHub. <laughs> That's what makes that funny. <laughs> yeah. What else have you been working on, Phil? Because I know you guys have got some interesting projects, uh, sort of broadening the horizons of GitHub. Yeah, so recently, one of the things we announced was, we're calling it an alpha, but we've been writing a GitHub extension for Unity, and that is written in C Sharp, and it's open source as well. It's uh, out there to try. We're not quite yet where we'd consider beta, in part because unlike the Visual Studio extension that we built, there wasn't already Git support in Unity. Uh, There wasn't any GUI for Git in Unity, so we've had to actually build the Git part as well as the GitHub part. And we're doing it with a fairly small team. And so it's been slow going, but, you know, I'm hoping to pick that up uh, in the coming years. We're, you know, doing planning for what we want to accomplish next year. But it's great if you are a game developer or as I I was just at the Unite conference, which is a conference Unity puts on in um, all over the world. But this one was in Austin. Hmm. And I'm seeing that Unity is very popular among the VR, AR, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality crowd. Sure. And I think that is extending beyond games in in quite a big way. So we saw a demo where it was 
some folks who did this demo for Cadillac. And so you put on the goggles and then you're standing right next to the Cadillac and you could switch out the rims and the color and all these different elements. And you could stick your head through the car and look inside or teleport inside wow. and just check out all elements of it. And it was really interesting experience. Like, you know, the only thing missing, obviously, is I can't actually drive it. But in terms of like, you know, browsing cars, if I was in the market to buy a car, like, you know, that is such a great way to look at cars. And so, sure, yeah, yeah, I could see that, you know, if you are not a game developer, you know, a typical app developer, uh, you know, working for uh, corporate clients, like there may come a time where something like VR, AR falls into your lap of, hey, we need something you know, can you build it? And Unity would be a great tool for that. There's the whole 3D modeling aspect, but then you can you know, script it with C Sharp. Right. And what our extension does is it adds Git support into it, but also support for uh, something called Git LFS, Git Large File System. Okay. And why is that necessary? So the interesting thing, if you're a game developer, and this is one area where like the workflows for game developers is fairly unique compared to like, you know, web developers and whatnot, because they're often dealing with very, very large binary assets, right? Like these 3D models, these textures and all this. And these files, if you put them in Git, you know, that's going to quickly inflate your Git repo to an unwieldy size. And in general, these things, you pretty much have to store each version of them because you can't like, you know, take a, a really large image file and merge it with another really large image file, at least not practically. Right. And so what ends up happening is you want to keep those files outside of Git. And so GitHub built this uh, technology called Git, what we call Git LFS. And that at the very simplest thing, it's uh, you mark what file types you want to exclude from the repo and store in Git LFS instead. And so when you commit these files, instead of committing them to the Git repo, what it does is it uploads to whatever host or you've uh, configured. So, you know, like AWS or Azure. And it uploads a file there, and then it just commits a pointer, a little text file that points to where the file actually is. Can I upload it to Ansel? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, so to, to your Ansel cluster. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm going to get hate mail now. I, I, I th- you know, like serverless computing has become this thing, and I think they're like rebelling against that, and it's going to they're going to come out with the term serverful full <laughs> computing. <laughs> Are you tired of serverless computing? I'm ready for something new. Yeah. Don't you miss the good old days when you had to hire an IT team? <laughs> <laughs> visit visit uh, your spinning metal in a co-location center. <laughs> Blinky lights and spinning discs. You're going to feel better. Hey, guys, just hold that thought right there while we take just a minute to uh, hear a word from our sponsors. Hey, Rockheads, this is Carl. Have you tried JetBrains Rider? It's a new cross-platform .NET IDE that's light yet powerful and comes from the makers of ReSharper, IntelliJ, IDEA, and WebStorm. You can write .NET code on Windows, Mac, or Linux. Rider has you covered. Rider helps you develop ASP.NET, .NET Core, .NET Framework, Xamarin, and Unity applications. Most languages used in .NET development are supported. From C-Sharp, VBNet, F-Sharp, and XAML, to ASP.NET Razor Syntax, JavaScript, TypeScript, and all that other front-end stuff. It comes with navigation, thousands of code inspections, refactorings, unit testing, debugging, rich coding assistance, and more advanced IDE features, powered by proven technology from ReSharper and WebStorm. Download Rider now and take it for a 30-day trial at rider.com. Dot netrocks.com. That's R-I-D-E-R dot D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S dot com. All right, we're back. You're listening to .NET Rocks, Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell. We're here with Phil Hack. We're talking GitHub and GitHub clients and Unity and all that good stuff. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry if I uh, cut you off in the middle of, a, of, a, of a, something you, important you were going to say. Oh, well, I was about to go on a digression oh. because you mentioned... I meant- we were talking about servers and uh, co-location, and mm, I have to tell you the yes. story. Do you all remember Digex? Digex. Like Exodus, Digex, their hosting providers? 
No, no, I don't. This can't, this can't be before your time. So back in the early days of the web, you know, if you needed to host a, a website for a large client, you you know either go to Exodus and Digix and either pay for their servers or have your own servers, you know, co- co-located there. And Digix, if you recall, had those commercials with Shaquille O'Neal and he's twirling, he's in a leotard and he's twirling, you know, like ribbons. Wasn't that WorldCom? No, no, Digix. Yeah, yeah. You have to look this up. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Digex. Okay. Uh, the reason why I remember this is uh, at the time I was working at a consulting company and our client was Charles Schwab. And we've been doing these marketing sites for them and hosting them at Digex. And the Lakers won the world championship. They're like, hey, you know, as a little like thing, we've got a, some extra tickets to Shaquille O'Neal's, uh, you know, celebration that we're throwing for him, you know, winning the world championship. So me and a few of my colleagues got to go to this party where uh, Shaquille O'Neal and, was there. And uh, I didn't see Kobe, unfortunately, but, uh, oh, God, what was his name? Other player. But there was a couple of other uh, Lakers there. And Shaquille walked right by me when we were on the dance floor. And I, I kid you not, it felt like his... His like fingers kind of brushed against my shoulder, but the, his arm was fully down. You know what I mean? Like he's just yeah. that giant. And he's a tall individual. And big, big guy. Oh, I see. Digex was acquired by WorldCom in 2001. That's why I got them. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, okay. Yeah. So it, th- these are all like the original ISPs pre-dot-com boom, right? The late, the early, mid-90s. And they all, you know, most of them imploded by 2001 yeah and maybe ansel is hearkening back to those days (laughs) (laughs) good call i'm gonna feel real bad i i bet like i have i don't even know what you're talking about to be honest like i just heard the description and it may be something that much cooler than (laughs) i'm giving credit for and I'll I'll have to look it up afterwards. Doesn't mean it isn't funny. Repentance. <laughs> I, I don't want to go away from Unity. Just, you know, my time with the gaming industry, you know, GitHub is about text files, right? I mean, it, the whole ability to merge, to have yes. distributed modification of the same file simultaneously and, it, and be able to resolve that, I, that doesn't make sense and really on the digital asset level, does it? No, it doesn't. And and uh, that's uh, one of the challenges that game developers have with working with GitHub, right? Like there's, you know, GitHub works great for, and Git works great for all the code files, but all the digital assets, it doesn't. And the thing that... The digital assets have to have metadata files associated with them. Yeah, I mean, they have to have metadata files. And then you, and the other thing is like, if two people end up accidentally are working on the same binary asset... Mm. And they try to merge them into the same branch. It's going to be, you know, tears and heartaches for everybody involved. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the features we support with the uh, GitHub extension for Unity is uh, file locking. So you can indicate like, hey, I'm working on this file and lock it across all branches. And uh, that way, like, uh, you know, nobody can work on it. It's kind of, you know, I know when I say that people... Like, oh, isn't that like it's kind of diametrically opposed to everything you guys stood for when it came to source code troll <laughs> management. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, it sounds like a, a little bit like Visual Source Safe days, but <laughs> a file system. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Fellas, hey fellas, it's a file system. <laughs> I got this idea. We'll take these files and we'll store them. Yeah. We'll have locks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this whole show is going to be crazy callbacks to the way we used to do stuff. And we'll we'll request access to write. Yeah, like everything old <laughs> is new again, gentlemen. <laughs> and it'll be wonderful. We'll live together forever. It's log. <laughs> we have to do this like Apple, right? We have this new original concept, iLock. Yeah, iLock. Exactly. Well, I mean, I feel like this reflects, there is this trend I've seen in the tech industry where like something new comes along and it solves this huge swath of problems for a lot of people. And then everyone gets really on board and it becomes the yep. way, the doctrine. And then in doing so, you've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater and you, you've forgotten that. Well, there are still, there may be cases where that approach mm-hmm. does not right. work. Um, and I think with very large files, that is a good example of one where, like, you know, branching and merging, which is so powerful for people writing code, doesn't ex- exactly work. Now, you know, what one thing I've learned, though, is, like, 
locking a file across all branches, you know, for a lot of workflows may be too heavy handed, right? And so we're, you know, meeting with game developers and, and people working in this space and trying to really uh, understand the workflows and, and make it even better for them so that, uh, you know, when they're working together with developers who are writing the code and you have the 3D model sure. and the composers writing music and all that, that, you know, we can f- kind of put together a workflow that works for everybody involved. And uh, when you just want to lock for write, you don't need to lock for read. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. Lock for yeah. write. That's exactly right. Yeah, because I mean, ultimately, what there, if two people modify that file in significant ways at the same time and try to merge them, there's really not much they can do. You know, in some cases, they could they'd have to coordinate, look at, oh, what changes were you trying to make? What yeah. changes were I trying to make it? And then reapply those changes. There's nothing... Uh, there's not going to no. be any automatic way. Mm-hmm. Like you're not going to get that beauty of the Git right. merge where it just understands how to merge the text uh, appropriately in most cases. And yeah, you know, you even get conflicts in yeah. text. But even when you get a conflict in text, you can kind of yeah. GitHub tends to get you right down to the line of conflict and go, here are the two versions. This is the line I can't resolve myself. What do you want to do? Yep. Right, right. And you don't want to do that, uh, you know, on an, a really large no. 3D model <laughs> or image file. Like, you just be littered with conflict. I mean, they do appreciate the good tooling is going to allow if two people do something like that to say, hey, you've both changed this. It's different than the one, both of them are different from the one before, and they're different from each other. Just wanted to let you know you're in hell. Thanks very much, right? <laughs> As opposed to what <laughs> right. would have happened with a traditional file system, which is whoever wrote last one. Hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last one in. And yeah, and and fail silently, right? Right. And then the person who had just made changes prior had no idea, right? Or or they find out later, like, hey, what happened to my changes? Oh Exactly. Caught, you know, Richard committed over them. Damn it. Yeah. And it's destroyed, right? I mean I I just like a good tool will just keep all the versions so you can always get back, which is something GitHub's always done with source code that you can always get back to a, a known good state. Mm-hmm. So same discipline around large files. Like that's, that's a feature, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to reflect on hacks, shack attack. Oh, in which basketball star Shaquille <laughs> O'Neal brushed his digexes on Phil's cold shoulder. <laughs> He writes them fast, my friend Carl Franklin. He writes them fast. Hack shack attack. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM and state controllers like Redux. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. You can check it out and test it for free on GitHub. And learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Andy Leggett. Congratulations, Andy. Yeah. Golf lap for you, sir. And Andy just won the D-Experience subscription. A great big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And of course, Phil, it's your turn. I can't remember what you said last time, but uh, if you had five grand to spend today on technology, what would you buy? I would get a VR headset and a HoloLens. No kidding. Do you want the new Samsung one? That's supposed to be very Windows-centric. Yeah, the new ones that are coming out, I was, uh, you know, the tracking is now built yeah. into the headset yeah. rather than having to set up 
uh, towers yep. in your house. So that I, I haven't picked up anything because I've been kind of waiting for something like that to come out. So yeah, clearly getting better. Would you be into making a HoloLens client for GitHub so we could just like you know wave our arms or something or poke something and that would send up a branch or you know make a fork gesture or something. <laughs> Yeah, we were funny enough. We were just talking about this, like get up for VR. Nice. You know, you could actually see the branches, and you could just drag them yeah. together and merge them. You know, by dragging them in 3D space, and if there's a merge conflict, it would all fall apart, and there'd be this 3D rotating poo emoji. <laughs> exactly. You know, and you could do like the transporter effect from Star Trek with the poo, and uh, just have you know stars flying all over the place. As much as you guys are mocking this, I'd like to bring up the idea. This is something Carl and I have talked about a number of times on stage as the keynotes, that today's developer working on their desktop machine is no longer building for their machine. They're right. building for a mobile device or any other number of different kinds of device. Yeah. Because who runs Windows apps anymore? Yeah. Jeez. Oy vey. With VR, we could, for the first time in a long time, be back to, I could be coding in the environment I'm coding for. Mm -hmm. I, I just wonder if it provides a significant advantage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw this demo that uh, Google, um, I think it's Google, it's called Blocks, and it's 3D uh, modeling within, you know, a VR environment, and you could drag shapes or do open brushes and you know draw things and then manipulate it with all these different tools change colors all that stuff but for creating a 3d model like for a game or whatever is really difficult and this made it seem like really easy it, you know conceptually just makes sense of how you would model you know at least get the initial prototype model for a 3d model for a game and then you could post process it to make it look really nice yeah and they had some really cool 3d models that they showed off there that people had made in the app and i was telling my daughter about that and she got real excited she's like oh yeah i want to drawn 3d yeah, and, yeah. and i really like the idea of then the bits and pieces of code you're literally touching the 3d object and giving it a rule and now it changes behavior it's something very matrix like mm -hmm. to sort of drop into a null space and then bring in bring in a a landscape and then instantiate some objects and then give those objects rules and capabilities mm. Yeah, you know, what you're describing is pretty much like what Unity is yeah. these days. Like, uh, they had this thing called, a, oh, I'm going to mess up the name, Camera Magic, I don't know, Cinemagic or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, they added this feature probably a couple versions back, but, like, it just brings intelligent camera control in. So, you just tell it, like, what kind of camera you want. Oh, I just want you to follow this. But you think a follow camera should be really simple, but you actually you get sick if it like immediately follows and right. and whatnot. It has to lag slightly, so if something accelerates, it has to kind of pull back and then slowly, you know, catch yep. up or things like that. Like if something moves right or left, it has to, you know. There's these rules that good cinematographers know that the average programmer probably doesn't. And just by saying, hey, I want this camera to be a follow cam or overhead right. cam, it like knows all the rules already, and you can tweak it. And so that sort of level of programming is really interesting, right? Where like it's really realizing the uh, vision of you know re code reuse and object oriented programming back in the day, right? Where these things are. I found the device. It's called Cinemachine. 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 That's it. Thank you. Yes. Unified procedural camera. Yeah, like I was pretty blown away by some of the stuff they had, and uh, they also showed off uh, Neil Blomkamp, the yeah, director of District Nine, created a short film with a, stu a little studio he has in Vancouver, completely using Unity, and it's called Adam A D A M. Hmm. It's really interesting. Okay, that's it's very cool, and I, and I think you know as much as we again we were making fun, we're approaching this ability to simply work and think in three D as developers be fun yeah i could definitely you know i may be too early for get it for vr just yet but i could definitely you know see us um you know exploring that space at some point visual studio for hololens perhaps yeah I'm, Ooh. <laughs> yeah i imagine that you know there are then visual studio integrates pretty well with unity or vice versa right yeah yeah it's all c sharp in the end yep mm-hmm any other thing, I mean, I guess large file storage for gaming, it's just about managing all those digital assets. Are there other elements of actually having good source management for a game? 
Uh, I think that's the part that's unique that I that I got a sense of, right? Because uh, a lot of the work was manipulating these models in the Unity editor, right? And so that's all either settings in a YAML file under the hood or actual digital 3D models. And then, like a lot of times, if you need to tweak the behavior of anything, you would like you know add these script files, and those were C sharp files. And you double click on that, and then it actually launches Visual Studio. Now you're writing C sharp. Right. Yep. And just work, working within the environment. So always lots of discussion going on about when is Microsoft going to buy Unity, and um, I, and I sort of I don't, <laughs> I couldn't answer that question because you sort of wobble back and forth on. I really hope they don't actually. Well, we said the same thing about Xamarin. Yeah. I guess it remains to be seen how well does the Xamarin acquisition play out over the long run, you know, and it seems to be doing really well. Yeah. Does it does it actually make it better? I mean, I'm happy that Miguel Diaz is inside of Microsoft now, that that mind is working on problems that Microsoft has, not just that Xamarin has. But I think, you know, to Carl's point, when he sort of hesitates on that, it's like, would it make it better? Or does it make it worse, harder? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I I mean, the they are very different products and for very different things. And uh, I mean, I like the fact that they work together closely with Microsoft. But but I don't know. You know, I think about I think about other things that Microsoft has bought and then became more Microsofty. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's hard to name names, though, isn't it? Well. Yeah, Skype, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it would only make sense if they saw a way of driving more traffic to Azure as a result of right. buying yeah. it, right? Because, you know, Unity targets something like 40 platforms, and it would really harm Unity to stop doing that. So clearly, it's not a, oh, build games for Xbox and Windows play. It would have to be a, oh, we can find a way where game developers are hosting more of their stuff on Azure because, you know, Unity makes that really easy now because we bought it. Right. And Unity is building their own cloud services for uh, game developers as well. So it could, you know, that could well be, you know, something where they say, well, why don't you just use Azure for that? And there is a lot of code that the Unity guys have to write to create a hosting environment that Visual Studio could take on. You know, if you take Visual Studio and add a 3D rendering engine and an asset management tool for larger resources and some workflow pieces, you're pretty close to there for what Unity does. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think we're off the beaten path a little bit there, but it is fascinating to me. I mean, obviously, the two ecosystems are living happily together, and I think Unity is getting more and more important because it seems to be the way for VR and HoloLens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting when Microsoft chooses to work with partners versus when they choose to acquire and what you know what yep. triggers that right because like i think it's really important for them to continue partnering with folks and and letting partners know that this is a good environment to partner in sure. right like uh you know as an example GitHub for visual studio right like we've partnered with them to you know add GitHub feature sets directly in visual studio and that's you know i think that's good for microsoft for others to see that oh look you know this third-party company can build really great experiences within their, like, top-of-the-line editor. Right. But I'd also point out, in my experience dealing with M&A, there is no acquired company that wasn't first a partner. <laughs> like, it is a very normal path. You know, you, you have to be friends before you get married. That is that is how it works. So it's not it doesn't always work out that way, and it's not necessarily that intention. It's just that wherever you see an acquisition, you see a working relationship that went on for some time first. Yeah, yeah. What about the GitHub extensions for Visual Studio? Because I thought for a long time, especially when you first went to GitHub, it was about building the desktop pieces and so forth rather than going directly into Studio. Yeah, well, when I first joined, I mean, the vision I had was that we wanted to. Well, at the time, I felt that developers in the Microsoft space, you know, .NET developers and whatnot, were underrepresented on GitHub. A lot has changed since then, <laughs> obviously. Yeah, yeah no a little kidding. bit. <laughs> I think in part because of, I'd like to think some of the work we did helped create uh, an environment more conducive to the 
the horde of uh, .NET developers coming in, but clearly the move of, you know, ASP.NET Core, .NET Core, all that, the climate under Satya has definitely created this environment where when Microsoft's doing all this development in uh, yep. GitHub, like a lot of their audience is going to follow. So it's been very good in that regard. And so, you know, my job has been, okay, let's be on the other end, welcoming all these developers with open arms. And the uh, GitHub for Visual Studio extension was sort of one aspect of that. And so one of the features that I'm really proud of that we just released, it's not quite where we want it to be yet, but it, it gives you a taste of the type of experience we think Visual Studio developers would want, mm. which is what we call inline comments. Okay. So right now, if you go into uh, the Team Explorer thing, when you're in a GitHub repo, assuming you know you have our extension installed and you're authenticated to it, there's a pull request uh, t- uh button there and you can click that you see a list of pull requests and you can you know double click on a pull request to check it out and so you'll check out that pull request branch mm-hmm. but you can also like in the pull request list which files have changed and click on a file and see what comments have been made in line on the diff cool uh, for that change so right in visual studio using their diff viewer we were able to extend it and add inline comments from the PRs and then you can add comments right from Visual Studio, right from the diff. Say, you know what, actually I don't like this change or whatever you want to say, right? Right. Where we're going with that though is we would like it, uh, and we have an experimental branch and you know we're not really talking about this a whole lot yet, but if you're in a editor and you're working on a file, but you're on a branch that has a PR associated with it. That if a comment comes in, it would show a little comment thing would show up in the gutter, and then you could click it and expand it, mm-hmm. and you could you could see it right in yeah. line with your code as you're coding. That's cool. Well, and you're thinking like near real time. So if, you know, if a bunch of people are fussing over a particular feature, and you've got that feature open while you're working on it, you would see the conversation going on effectively. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we wouldn't have it like suddenly pop up all the comments. Ideally, it'll be very subtle, like a little um, in the gutter, little comment bubbles will show up. Of yeah, little ping. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it lets you know they're talking about you. Yeah, and then you're like, oh, I better, you know, I'm working on that line of code, and I noticed someone comment on. It. I better see what they're saying. Expand it. You could reply right back. Ideally, you'd be able to comment on code as you're writing it too. Like say, you know, I don't want this comment in the code. This is more relevant to the reviewer right. of the code. I'm just go ahead and you know click it, comment it, and then when I push, all those comments go up. We're not there yet. I want to be very clear. We have a lot of both user experience challenges and also, you know, we have some uh, changes we would have to make on the back end. Like as an example, today. If you are in a PR, you can only comment on lines that have changed. Yeah. And on one hand, that kind of makes sense that these are the lines that change. That's what you want to review. But on the other hand, like it would be nice if you could comment on arbitrary lines because you might be like, hey, I noticed you made this change here. Why didn't you make that change on this line? And, and you might want to comment that line. And so we're going to have to work with other teams at GitHub to expand the, the support in the API in order to enable these scenarios. But that's kind of where we want to get to, where as you're coding and people are reviewing this code, you have that context right there and you can respond to that conversation right from Visual Studio. And I think that would be a very powerful way to work. And today, you know, like we just have it in the div view, but if you try it out, it's a real nice experience even there, you know, like being able to see the latest review right from Visual Studio without having a context switch back and forth from the browser to Visual Studio. Right. Now... It's not going to be as full an experience of reviewing a PR from GitHub.com. So, like, if you're in the mindset, I'm ready to review code, like, maybe you do want to go to GitHub.com. Right. But the nice thing about being in Visual Studio is that, you know, you can run the code as you're reviewing it and things like that, which is generally what you want to do, right? I don't want to just review code. I want to run it and make sure that it does what I think it does. Yeah, I mean, it's that's the normal development cycle, that write a little, run a little, make an edit, run it again. Like Everything we can do to shorten up that loop makes us more productive, right? Like, it's mm. important. Yeah, and that's the goal. That's the goal with GitHub for Visual Studio is we want to tighten that loop, but recognize that other people are in that loop, that you're not right. alone. <laughs> and how can we you know, tighten the end-to-end loop, not just your loop of write code run, but your loop of write code get some feedback yeah. run. Yeah, well, and you, your basic concept here of two people are talking or somebody's chatting about a feature you are literally looking at the code on, you need to be aware of that. Yeah, or if that code changes, right? 
you know, someone pushes a change that affects that code, you know, why wait till you push to find out that there's a conflict? What if we told you right then and there? That's the kind of thing. And I get real excited about this. I want to point out this is also open source cool. on GitHub. And so folks are get excited about wanting to help out. You know, we do take contributions. All right. So really open source. You will take people's pull requests. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've had some folks have implemented stuff that we just wanted but weren't going to get around to. So it's been great to receive contributions. We know that working on an extension of Visual Studio is a bit daunting. So like it, we're not getting a huge amount of contributions. But when we do, it's very much appreciated. Yeah, it's, re it's really cool. Good stuff. You know, when I was looking for things to talk about for Better Know Framework, my original thought was, you know, somebody has to have hooked up some hardware like a joystick or buttons or sliders or something to to github for the client just to do pull requests like can you imagine having a lever for a pull request pull you know <laughs> <laughs> some fun things like that and man i didn't find anything i mean it's all about you know you can't say github buttons because those are buttons you know on the screen right but i thought that would be fun <laughs> Get a branded hardware. Yeah, I could see Clemens Vasters getting like an B2 bomber cockpit uh, controller. <laughs> <laughs> the big, the big uh, uh, engine controls from that yeah. from that that center plant. You know, it's funny the physical hardware around source code. Do you remember the Nabaz tag, the little bunny rabbit that was like a early cloud service? Yep. And one of the things you could do is tie it to your build process so it would do silly things when you broke the build and, or, yeah. it would, you know, sort of indicate where it was in the build process. And it's all dead now, right? They've gone broke and so forth. I bumped into one the other day where it's been gutted and they put Arduino hardware in it so they could bring it back to life. That's so funny. Huh. That's interesting. But, it, you know, I think it's one of the problems we have as developers is that our stuff's so cerebral. It's just like organizing electrons. Anytime you can create a physical manifestation of the things that we make, I think it's kind of important. Whether, you know, breaking the build or showing we're in test or the new version deployed, any visualization, any physical representation, it's, it makes a difference for people. That's so cool, yeah. Yeah, like I remember when people used to have like traffic, old school traffic yeah, lights yeah. hooked up to their build. So you see that. But I think one of the challenges it becomes like, well, which build do you hook to your traffic yeah. light? Because I have 20 builds yeah. going on for 20 different, you know, things that we're building, right? And so... How many blinky light distractions did we want in the room too, you know? Right, right, right. Well, and one of the manifestations there is... What I liked about having the physical, I did this with the Nabas tag. You see the bill get broken, so the bunny's ears goes down. You don't do a sync. You don't grab that broken code, so you continue to develop, right? Before you grab, you take a look at the bunny. Oh, the bunny's sad. I'm just, I'm going to keep working on my branch here. I'm not. <laughs> you're the one person still working because you looked at the bunny. That's hilarious. Yeah. So what's next, man? What are you working on now? Besides, you know, more GitHub client stuff. I have some stuff in the works that I can't talk about just yet, uh, but... Uh, oh, go on. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> We're all about you limiting your career, Phil. Just us. Just a couple guys <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> Nobody's listening. We wouldn't tell anybody, man. Come on. I mean, the, the general theme of the work that my, I and my teams are doing is is really extending GitHub beyond the browser. You know, like a lot of, for a lot of people, GitHub is this website and it's right. Git, right? Pushing to a website. And we want to extend GitHub beyond the browser, beyond the, the command line and support more workflows, right? Like you have a lot of the folks who are, who are developers working on code, but you also have a lot of folks who are contributing to software, but aren't actually writing code. They may be, you know, artists, writers, documentation writers, all that stuff. And so a lot of, you know, what we're thinking about as we move forward is what can we do to help those folks out? One thing, the Adam team, so Adam is our text editor we mentioned earlier, built on Electron, uh, is working on is really cool. Um, they've been working on real-time collaborative editing, sort of the, the Google Docs experience within Adam. And the idea would be that you could connect with anyone on GitHub and say, hey, uh, I could use your help on this code. Mm. Start a session, and you both have a cursor, and you're editing in the same text file at the same time. And it, it's cool because it uses this technology called CRDTs, which I just blanked on what that stands for. There's a 
sort of the lead architect is uh, Nathan Sobo, and he's the one who understands this technology way better than me. But it's really great because there's a lot of interesting challenges when you start building this, mm -hmm. right? For example, what does Control-Z do? Can you make sure that it only undoes my changes and not your changes? And little, you know, little things like that. How do you deal with high latency environments? And uh, the cool thing about CRDTs is that you're sending like how things are changing over the wire back and forth. Like you might go through GitHub to figure out who you can connect with, but we'll try to set up a peer-to-peer -peer connection. And you'll, you'll be uh, sending these change sets back and forth. And if there's latency and they get backed up, that's fine. Cause once they get through, they're kind of like get divs. They're just applying these little, you know, micro patches so that uh, the file's changing in a smart way. And we have a lot of pair programmers within mm. the Atom team. So for them, this is something they're really excited about because this is going to change how they work together. And, you know, we, we think there'll be a lot of situations where like people may want to, write code at the same time, you know, for work, for pairing sessions, for teaching, um, yeah. who knows, right? We're, we'll find out. But uh, this is something that we'll be announcing fairly soon. So we should have a, I, I, I don't know what date we'll have an alpha out, but we're going to have something out that people can play with uh, and try it out. Very, very cool. Thanks, Phil. It's always great to talk to you. And sorry, we got to wrap it up, but I got a BBS to log into. <laughs> I gotta find me a working dial-up modem and an RJ11 jack because I don't have either one of them anymore. I don't even have a phone. I can't <laughs> on the wall. I gotta see how my space warships are doing. <laughs> oh, so much fun! Thanks again, Phil. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a